Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hates, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about... Freedom and facticity, a key theme in existentialist philosophy, so we're going to be getting into some Jean-Paul Sartre and some Simone de Beauvoir and some other Frenchies, I think, as well. Um, this is something that, that I, I got into quite a bit in college, so I've been thinking about this for quite some time, and I was very interested when you proposed that we we talk about this. So what is your particular interest? What's piquing your curiosity about these kind of metaphysical questions? I'm very interested in, like, meaning and the power that meaning has and gives to an individual and the places in which people find that meaning and unfortunately there are many pitfalls where people try to find meaning and and they can they can find a facsimile of it but they're not actually thinking about why they actually accept that and so i guess to a certain extent you can see this in um uh say like uh far right-wing groups like skinheads or whatnot or also like um fundamentalists of any religious stripe um that they have an idea of they know exactly what is true um like true true absolutely but that can also lead to some really incredibly negative violent ends and i want to i'm, I'm very interested in uh, the existentialists, especially Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, uh, about how they tried to thread this needle of figuring out where one should actually be uh, placing that meaning. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, when you when you talk about it that way, in terms of meaning, I guess one of the good launching points for this is, I, I would say that when it comes to groups like that, or, or really anybody who buys into something that, that is providing them with, with certainty. It's not just that they think that now they've got the map to the universe and they can tell who the, the good people are and the bad people are and what history is all about and you know how they're on the right side of it or anything along those lines. It's also self-definition. It's also figuring out who they are and what their story is and how they fit into all of this and Sartre and de Beauvoir, I, I myself, I would actually say that maybe they go a little bit too far in the loosey goosiness of, of how much is up to us, you know. But I think that they are very useful in breaking down those, those like hardened blocks of, well, this is the way it has to be. And it, you know, it could be stuff like you were talking about where. It's uh, one form of religious fundamentalism or another, and we're seeing this as a, a big problem, uh, you know, in the in the world, uh, not just here in America, but on the world scene, um, and not just with right wing uh, groups that have you know increasingly public presence and uh, some really um, quite amazingly stretched out narratives about things. But I think you could also talk about this as people who like buy into. Um, let's call it simplistic understandings of the American way of life or the American dream or, you know, actually I'll, I'll tell you a story about, about somebody who I saw 
and I won't say who it is, although I'll, I'll just say it's somebody who's who's close to me. This this guy was the you know if he was in the fifties, he would have been the guy wearing the uh, the gray flannel suit. You know, he fit into the the university where he was working as a advisor for students, which is a good job, right? It's it's nice. You're helping people out. You're you're guiding them along. Um, it's definitely comfortable. Yeah, and 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 he ended up, you know, he was very diligent, and he had the view that, well, if you just do your work right and treat everybody nice and, and fit in, good things are going to happen to you. And that's that's a rather simplistic narrative. And sometimes things work that way, and a lot of times things don't. And he had that way of looking at the whole world. So he would give me advice, you know, about how I should be more optimistic and, you know, not criticize systems because, you know, that way I, everything would work out nicely for me too. And he would tell this to all sorts of other people, which made him a little insufferable, you know, um, even despite the niceness. And what ended up happening is because he was so good at what he did, he started rising up through the, the ranks. And eventually, he, uh, when, when the dean of advising left at his university, he was tapped to be the acting dean. And he, he always had um, dreams of becoming a university president someday. That's like his big goal in life. You know, we have all, all sorts of other goals. That would never be something that I would find meaning in, right? But that was, I don't know where he got that from, but that was what he wanted to do. And so this is a, like a, you know, stepping stone. And then catastrophe hit. He um, was invited to apply for the position when it became open. And they ended up hiring a less qualified outside candidate, even though he'd been doing the job for a year. And now his whole world fell apart because he was, he was resting everything on this one basic principle, which is that life is fair. And I guess there's two basic principles. Life is fair. And if you put in good work, you're going to be recognized and you know, the universe is going to reward you or people are going to... Hey, fell into that just world fallacy right there. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I'll, I'll let you guess. What do you think happened to this guy? Uh, he, a psychological break or just maybe just some pretty deep depression? Well, he didn't get depressed, but there uh, was a psychological break. Not not like a psychotic break or anything like that. What do you, what do you think he did? Uh, did he become a nihilist? Kinda, more of, more of a hedonist, more of a ah. um, you know the system is rigged, everything is is wrong, so I'm going to enjoy myself as much as possible. He really went off the deep end. He like swung from one extreme of being the buttoned up, uh, you know, essentially corporate type, right? And, and when I say corporate type, I'm not knocking people in corporations. There's lots of cool people in corporations, but there is a corporate type, right, mm -hmm. that we know. So he swings all the way to the other end and becomes a bad boy. And he and his, um, he, you know, he, it broke up his marriage, although his marriage was pretty, you know, it was the kind of marriage where you'd look at them and you'd say, I can't imagine those people ever having intimacy. Um, and so they, they had a, uh, they, they liked each other very much. And, and then he, he found, you know, um, you know, bad so Are you saying that his uh, marriage, they're living in bad faith? 
to have a yes, of yes, I, I think so. Insofar as a marriage generally is understood as involving what we, you know, in the old days they called conjugal love, right? Attraction, mm. sexual desire, and enjoyment, and that sort of thing. I mean, otherwise, just be roommates or friends or something like that, which they remained, by the way, friends after the divorce. But he swung the other way, and now he's partying, and he goes to a different place, and he, you know, he's not going to get like the Husung. He's not going to get fooled again, right? <laughs> and eventually he came back to the middle and you know now he's i think probably um not just older and wiser but a bit more grounded and i think that to go back to this issue of meaning he's he's now established some sort of stable meaning for himself in relation to his 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 current life and his job and all of that sort of stuff but i I think a lot of people you know when when things are working out for them they 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 decide that I'm going to invest myself in this way of, of being and things staying the same here. And then when it falls apart, because, I mean, one of the things that Sartre and de Beauvoir tell us is so much of our life is really contingent. And I don't think you or I probably had any trouble figuring that out. But I think there's quite a few people who for a while things work out for them. And then there come these these crises that we call existential crises crises of meaning right mm-hmm. so yeah that's yeah, a long story but <laughs> it was good though it's very illustrative of this point and you know maybe it goes to one of the central topics of existentialism that existence precedes essence and so he it seems like he had this uh uh, essentialist idea that he had a there is an essence of like a just world and he was playing his part within that world and he should be rewarded for him playing his part well and all of a sudden um this the grounding for his meaning of this you know this essence that was out there in the ether was torn away from him that it doesn't comport to reality yeah that's the thing. It was revealed that reality was not what he had thought it was, right? Right. Um, he, he, he might say, oh, you know, um, my meaning has been taken away. And, and maybe, you know, we have to be kind of careful about where we place our meaning. Maybe that's, that's part of the uh, lesson there. Right. And uh, I've made the argument in the past that you should place your meaning in some place that cannot be taken away from you. Ah, so you're bringing in the Stoics, right? At that point? Uh, yes, it was uh, a paper I wrote uh, on what the place where you should place your meaning is. I don't think the the Stoics talk exactly in those terms, um, but to place the, the, the seat, your locus of your meaning in something that can't be taken away from you. So, for example, if you, you place your meaning in your job, which a lot of people tend to do, yeah. but your job is a very ephemeral position, you either lose it or your company could fold or you know a, a number of different things could come about and then now you're not that thing anymore. And if you move your, your place to something that is more abstract, so say you're, um, you're an educator instead of a teacher at Marquette University, for example, and and now you uh, you can allow yourself with the idea of your meaning being an educator that you can now uh, put the uh, the tangible position of where you put educator 
into many different places. And so it doesn't even mm. have to be at a, a university as long as you're teaching or passing information. Oh, on. you're changing the meaning. You're widening the meaning of, of educator in that case, right? From something that you've defined it as. You know, this is really an interesting point because as somebody who has worked in a lot of different places in academia, and right now I, I, I routinely teach for three different places, and I, I still have my Marquette email, so I always know what's going on there as well. So you can say I'm, I'm tapped into four. Um, it's really amazing to me when I deal with people who've only really worked at one place or have worked at one place for quite a long time and had worked in another place. You know, they've had sort of a serial career rather than a, uh, a more smorgasbord career, let's call it. They, they lack a frame of reference quite often. They think that the way things are done there is just the way things are, you know. And I think that's kind of a, a natural tendency, not just in, you know, academic institutions, but workplaces. If you've been with one place for a very long time or you've got a set of clients and you just always deal with them, it, it's kind of natural to think, well, that's just, that's just the, how everything works, right? Right. And, you know, to, for example... In education, especially in colleges, you have that tenure track, and you think that's that's the way it has to be. And if you oh, get thrown off of that, are, are you talking about the way it has to be, like in terms of like for for an individual? Or are you talking about like, well, that's that's how um, college should be organized? No, as in like the gold standard of an individual being a t- teacher, and it's like, oh, you know, you're you're given this idea of like you want to get tenure. Maybe mm. it's changing because the whole college university systems are changing but for a very very long time it's like that was like the only way that you could signify that you had made it yeah as an educator you had one goal and um and i guess to go back to my ideas to like you know do you know what you are is a, a very you're still educating and it's it's making this a uh, a bringing a abstraction instead of a specific example of that larger category you you say like well my goal is to educate and i can do that in many many places with many different uh people and in different uh ways yeah and um as long as you keep it general enough then there are you know, a, a whole host of places in which you can express that uh, general meaning. You know, that's a really interesting topic. And if you don't mind me going off off our main topic a little bit. Sure. Um, so, you know, we have right now a lot of graduate students in different fields, and there definitely are not the jobs for them. You know, most of them that get PhDs, are not going to work as professors in their fields. That's just, that's not feasible. It hasn't been feasible since my generation where when I would apply for a job, there were, you know, anywhere from 300 to 500 other people applying for that same single job. Um, Now, granted, you know, we were all applying for different jobs, so it would cut it down a bit, but it would still be way more people than, than you could find jobs for. So, you know, it's prudent for younger, you know, 20-something graduate students to think about alternative careers. And it turns out that if you get a degree in the humanities 
And actually, if you get a degree in other things, the social sciences, the, the natural sciences, well, you know, you can actually do a lot of other things. You've, you've shown that you can carry out research, you can synthesize information, you probably can make decent arguments. There's, there's lots of things that one could do. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Um, I know of a few universities where they resisted bringing in people to talk with their graduate students about that because they didn't want the graduate students to get the wrong idea. The wrong idea would be that you shouldn't just aim for a tenure-track job. Instead, you know, uh, you, you, should, you should apply yourself to that and try to get a postdoc somewhere and, and just chase this will-o'-the-wisp wherever it leads you and be willing to sacrifice everything for that. Because to consider an alternative career path is to sell out, to give up, to settle for something. Now, you know, it, when, when those professors were applying for jobs, maybe that actually made some sense. If they're like 60 years old and close to retiring, they are from a generation where there were sometimes more jobs than there were applicants. And people would actually call you up and say, hey, can you come out here to this university and start teaching for us? That has, has been gone for, you know, 30 years. And to tell, now here we come back to the, the thing about meaning, right? How do we define the meaning of our existence? You're, you're, you're onto something really important here. If, if, if your desire, if your drive is to be an educator, and I think for a lot of these people who are in the um, graduate school tracks, they, they really do want to teach people. And, and, and so do so many other people. It's, it's a, a natural human drive that's, that some of us have more strongly than others. Um, well, you know, do you allow your professors to define this for you, what it means to be an educator? They probably have no idea what the world you're going into looks like. Or do you take your cues from things that are closer to the ground and say, I need to be realistic about what it means to be an educator. It might mean being a docent in a museum. It might mean um, organizing things in, in, you know, for political rallies. It might mean all sorts of other possibilities. And like you look, especially like what you do with uh, Sophia or any one that wants to do public philosophy. And I guess we're just yeah. I, I constrain the the topic to the the topic of teaching and utilizing philosophy. Okay. Um. There there are a number of places in which you can be materially a benefit to people. There are very large companies that have very large power in this country at this point in time yeah. and uh, there is a, a room for uh, ethicists to be in those positions because you know they are making decisions that are affecting you know hundreds of millions if not billions of people and there there are ways that you can utilize these skills um, in really beneficial ways for humanity, I guess. And if, if you look That's at true. Like, teaching as just yeah. you know, benefiting the new generation, um, there, there's definitely a, yeah. a corollary there. That's Yeah, that, actually, that's another important point. Oftentimes we lose sight of what's the point of teaching. Well, it's, you know, if we think about things at a very grand scale, what, what separates us from the animals? It isn't just having technology or being able to speak to each other, stuff like that. It's human culture. And human culture is something that has to be relearned basically every 15 years. 
because you have a new generation coming up who doesn't know anything <laughs> unless we teach it to them. And, and uh, I mean, they'll figure some things out on their own, like how to, how to enjoy themselves sexually and how to, how to get drunk and, you know, things like that. Those, those, and how to compete with each other. Those are kind of, I won't say no-brainers because they are complicated too, but when it comes to the stuff that we really need to be passing on to them, um, unless we make a concerted effort to do it, it's just not going to happen. This, this view that like now we're in this technology age and information is just floating out there. I, I have a lot of students who don't know how to use Wikipedia well, you know, or Google for that matter. You know, they take the stuff that's on the very first page and they never go any further than that, you know. So somebody has to, I mean, we could, we could complain about, oh, these, these, these kids these days, you know. Um, but the better thing is to actually like show them other possibilities, you know, what they're missing out on. Right. And so, for example, we're talking about SART and whatnot um, today, and we think yeah, that's yeah. A, a important topic to talk about. Yeah. And why, why the are only we place that you these... could potentially hear about this is at a university philosophy course, then this yeah. is going to eventually uh, you know, seep back into the ether. Yeah, why are we talking about these people that have been dead since the 80s, you know? Uh, and right. we're, we're old back then. Uh, well, because it, it's perennial. And it's it's got stuff to say to the, the younger generation, as well as those of us, I won't speak for you, Dan, but those of us who are in middle age. <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about Sartre and, and, and okay. De Beauvoir. Um, um, so I guess we should talk about um, facticity and transcendence here. Yeah, so these are jargony terms. We, we've got to provide, if not a definition of these, some sort of characterization. So what do you take facticity to mean? It's a cool-sounding term, right? Yeah. I've got my facticity. Yeah, it's it's fairly simple. It's just like the the concrete realities of an individual, um, their physical attributes and their, uh, their history, their... Uh, what they did, what happened to them, um, so as well as like their habits, the dresses, and their like expected responses as an individual at this moment of time. And so these things change over time as we gain new experiences and new skills. But yeah. it is it is a a thing to try to think about at a particular moment in time for an individual and it is some, constantly in flux some of our facticity changes but some of it we can't escape from like so for in our in our society for example uh, we have racial categories and the race that you are categorized under is part of your facticity and that as we know determines a lot of other things you know because we, we still do have people who respond to others primarily on the basis of oftentimes perceived race you know um, and I suppose we could say gender fits in there and now now we inhabit a time where the, the notion of gender is becoming more fluid, but, you know, it's, it's mostly pretty fixed, right? And, and there's, there's vast parts of our society where um, you might try to say, well, I'm, I'm gendered this way, and then people say, nope, you're, you're getting this. And that would be, again, part of your facticity as right. well. So, so some of and, it... And here's like, you know, I'm, I'm not super tall, and so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and so I don't have the, 
the physical abilities that, like, for example, Usain Bolt has. So I'm never going to be a world champion sp- uh, sprinter. Well, you and me both. <laughs> I'm tall, but I'm not going to do that either. <laughs> um, just, like, regardless of how much I train, that's just not in my facticity oh. as an outcome that could happen. Yeah, and so that's actually a good good point to talk about, right? We can We can change some of the aspects of our facticity, but, um, you know, some of it we're, we're just stuck with. And, it, and it's kind of contingent, and we didn't choose it. But that's the way it is, right? And so I think some people view themselves as essentially just all facticity. I'm just what people have made me, or I'm just um, what I chose to be at one point in time, and now I'm stuck with that, right? Right. It's like, my dad was an electrician, and his dad was an electrician, and I'm going to be an electrician because that's just the way it is. Yeah, you could have the opposite thing, too, where you'd be like, my dad was an electrician, but I wasn't going to listen to what the man told me, so I went out and became a rebel and, you know... uh, Became a plumber. (laughs) (laughs) But you could still become an electrician later on in life. Well, I guess maybe dad had something to say, but I think there's, there's quite a few people who... And this is one very practical application of this, who they they commit themselves to something and they get themselves sort of mindset fixed in it or stuck in it. And they think, I can't do otherwise. And it it could also be in relationships. People are like, well, I married this person or I'm dating this person. Guess I'm stuck with them. Or or it could be a type like, well, I guess I always got to, you know, I always got to date people who treat me this way. Yeah, definitely a sunk cost fallacy in that. Like, How so? Doing so, it so and, yeah, Say, that's so, a great example. So, uh, the sunk cost fallacy is this idea that I've already spent so much money on something, and so I should keep on spending money on this to maintain it because I've already put already this money. And so it's kind of like, uh, for example, uh, if you got a stock and you, you spend so much money on it and it keeps on going down, you're like, well, I can't sell now. <laughs> I'll I, lose so my I money, so yeah. Much, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even though it, it, it might like they it might go bankrupt and you'll lose all of your money, and so the idea to try to get yourself out of the sunk cost fallacy is to say, especially for like monetary things, is to say, uh, if I was going to invest in this thing now, would I invest in it? At this point, you know, re- disregard my history of that that what I have with it, and so this kind of comes to into the idea of transcendence, and this is our our freedom for the possibilities of things yet to come. And yeah. How... And, and now notice, like Sartre, when he talks about this, he talks about it in, in terms that seem very negative, right? Our transcendence for, for the possibilities, those possibilities don't exist. They're just like imagined or, you know, they're, they're not like floating out there for us to grab them like low-hanging fruit or something. We have to act to make them to, to, to make them live possibilities and then to transform them from possibilities to actualities. And there's no guarantee in the world that we inhabit that our deciding to do that will actually make them into actualities. So if I, I don't know, let's say I decide as I've tried to um, make myself do a couple times, I, you know, when I was in, in undergraduate, I, I started learning Chinese and I was tutoring Chinese students and hanging out with them. So I actually learned quite a bit learning Mandarin, you know, 
And I didn't keep up with it. And then I always go through these surges where I'm like, this is going to be the year. I'm finally going to like buckle down and start on the path to learning Mandarin. You know, one of the world's largest languages, right? And got a great literature to it. Uh, it wouldn't be a bad thing for me to do. Now, Every time that I do that, I, I really have to blame it on myself. I, I haven't stuck with it. I, I get tied up with other projects. But let's say I actually do, you know, let's say 2021 is the year and I make an effort and I like get all the language books and all the, the aids and stuff like that. And then it turns out that, I don't know, the internet crashes and it's gone. Uh, well, you know, maybe I don't learn Mandarin again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not up to me. Um, there's things that can interfere with, with those possibilities. But that would be the basis of your facticity, that you no longer have the resources to get at that. Yeah, and not just my facticity, but everyone else's too. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could still say, like, well, you could just, you know, plug away move at the books. to China or, or something and, and immerse yourself there. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. That's, I mean... I have responsibilities, so I don't know that yeah. I could actually pull that off. But that's, that's, that's a good example. So yeah, this, this you know, we are beings who have uh, no matter how how much our our um, current situation is restricted, we do have some degree of freedom to choose things for ourselves, to choose how we view things, to choose what kind of person we want to strive to be. You know. Um, and it may not be effective, but right. we, we, we have some freedom. So that's what, what Sartre calls transcendence. Um, and so there's, we're constantly living in a, a push and pull between transcendence and facticity, that our transcendence, our choices based upon our current state of affairs, uh, creates a new facticity, which in then in turn creates uh, a new set of potential outcomes and choices, which are a new transcendence. Yeah. So there's, I guess there's two things you can say about that. One is that we're always sort of like coming out of facticity and then we, we can't like stay up and out of it. We have to go back into it. Um, Sartre talks about this in terms of freedom and determinism that we're always emerging from a determinism, exercising some freedom and then coming back into it, which changes the determinism a bit and allows us to have a, a coherent world. Um, but there, there is a tendency for people to, to want to be on, on one side or the other, or let, let's say at one level or the other, since I'm using this vertical metaphor. Mm -hmm. they, they, some people want to say, I'm just in the facticity. I can't change anything. This is just the way it is. But they're exercising their freedom, according to Sartre. And then there's other people who want to like just stay in the freedom by itself. But freedom is sort of like um, you know, sort of like uh, certain kinds of dishes or drinks. It gets stale real quick. You can't like keep freedom bottled up and not use it. It's kind of use it or lose it, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's got a shelf life. And, and so this, you know, he he calls this. If you either choose to try to deny one or the other, living in bad faith. Yeah. Now, what, what, when that when you hear that word, what does that bring to mind for you? Do you think it has the same sort of effectiveness as when he chose it back then? In French, it's mauvaise foi, and then we translate it as bad faith. What do you think about when you hear the word bad faith? So first, it kind of like it makes you think of good faith and what what good faith 
in our, our normal parlance means and like you know someone you know is is being honest with you that they're they're not uh, taking you for a sucker to a certain extent yeah but, you know um and so in that idea uh Sardis is making the assertion that these people that are leaving in either pure transcendence or pure uh facticity are basically uh taking themselves as suckers that they are yeah uh removing from themselves their own freedom and so he there's a a way of thinking about this of you've got either two people you've got a king that says you must be um a stable boy or otherwise i will kill you or you have a story that you says like oh my my dad owns livery and i have to be a stable boy until he dies and then i might become uh the owner of the livery um uh, but you still have the freedom to to choose to not be the stable boy but you've given yourself this story this facticity that this is your expected thing in life and that you are the one that are, is actually being the tyrant to yourself and not the king you know it's interesting that you use that word story because um sartre was a teller of stories right he he was well and so is de beauvoir um they they both wrote um plays he wrote quite a few. She wrote one. Um, they wrote novels. They both wrote a lot of novels. They wrote short stories. They wrote memoirs, all sorts of things. And, and these are all narratives about who people are and how they define themselves. A, a lot of their stories are stories of conflict as well, where people are like trying to impose, you know, this is the story for us onto the other person and the other person, you know, accepts it or rejects it or, you know, whatever else is going on. Um, Sartre himself didn't seem to have an awful lot of faith in narratives. And maybe part of it is because, you know, he thought that we need to have a story that we like revise as we're going through it. And we have to take account for that. Whereas a lot of people would rather, they, they love, people love stories. I mean, that's why Netflix is such a success right? and, and, and so many other things. Um, and it's the way that we understand a lot of concepts in our world. Yeah, and there's this tendency to take stories as if they are kind of magical. They, they reveal how things are to us and they allow us to, to get a grip on the world and ourselves and others and all of these That's things. the reason why parables are so powerful. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, maybe we have to be le really leery about the stories that we're telling ourselves or we have to examine them every so often. Mm -hmm. And so this is... Uh kind of that living in ambiguity the 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 to be constantly revising and and constantly looking at your facticity and your choices and making decisions uh, requires you to constantly be changing that story about yourself to constantly adding in those new information yeah. not only from yourself but from your environment especially the people around you because a lot of times that we have a very difficult time understanding who we are uh because we're blinded to who we are yeah and and you know sometimes we might um keep the story right and but but when we do it it's not always the same story 
So I like what you said about adding something in there. And also about like maybe taking into account what other people say. I'll give you a you know, prime example. I used to be really, really stubborn when I was younger. And actually, it probably lasted well into my 30s. And um, I, would, I would sometimes, you know, I'd made a, a lot of dumb decisions at, at different points. And I would sometimes ask my, my close relatives, why didn't you say anything to me? And they'd say, well, I mean, we tried, but you didn't listen. And then after a while, we just quit trying because what, what the hell's the point, you know? Um, and, and if I'd been ready to, like, hear them out, I, I would have made different decisions. Or maybe I wouldn't have. I don't know. But, but it would be a different story. And by hearing retrospectively what had been left out of my perspective, I get a, I get a better um, narrative along the way. Now, I, you know, not necessarily everything that we add would be better. If it's, if it's lies, you know, like if they had said, well, you know, we knew you were an alien uh, come from Zizak or something like that, and they just were BSing me, and I'm like, oh, well, that explains everything. That would not be a particularly good story to incorporate, right? So we have to right. be kind of selective. And, and that means we have responsibility uh, to, to exercise a sort of um, prudence or diligence when it comes to that. And so living in, in bad faith, a lot of people fall into it um, because it, it gives them a sense of grounding. And so like it gives them a sense of, of like... Security, right? Security. And so the idea of... Um, living in constantly updating who you are and your choices that are going, it's, it always provides a, a place where you feel like you're lacking something and you're always searching and, yeah. and feeling that lack and searching is an uncomfortable feeling. And the uh, Sartre and Simone um, de Bolivar uh, both call this uh, ambiguity. Yeah. You know, and so if you look at the examples that Sartre himself gave us, and so does Simone de Beauvoir, too, in, in you know, Ethics of Ambiguity and uh, The Second Sex and some of her other uh, novels. Um, some of them still work and some of them might seem a little dated. Uh, I've never been really that convinced about Sartre's talking about the waiter who's being too much of a waiter. I don't mm-hmm. know. What do, what, do, what do you make of of that one? That seems like it's a example that is not quite a contemporary example anymore maybe at that time in paris there was such a cafe culture that there was you know yeah. a perfect waiter that was expected i don't know i feel like going to bastille days here in milwaukee they do have that waiter uh challenge where they have to <laughs> yeah, perform that's right. <laughs> i forgot about that yeah but that's just for a contest that's not like let's be like this all the time right you know, but he does have this interesting example of the woman who's out on a date and um, the man puts his hand on, I think, her, her hand or mm-hmm. her arm. And she knows that what this is signifying is that things are moving along and that, you know, sooner or later she's either going to have to decide to reject his advances or to accept them, but she pretends like she doesn't notice his hand precisely because of that. Now, we could we could switch the genders, we could change this up in all sorts of different ways, but this notion of like hiding from oneself, that one is being sooner or later confronted with dealing with, with somebody else, um, I think that's, that's totally relatable. Yeah, it's the, you're abdicating your choice by 
not making a choice and not realizing that not making a choice is a choice in and of itself. Yeah. Now um, that's a great line, right? And it yeah. shows up in, in uh, rush and yeah. rush of course got it from the existentialists, <laughs> right? To even to, how does it go? Uh, to choose not to decide still to, to, to make a choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I guess another example I had was um, there are certain religious groups that uh, have a moratorium on giving getting uh, blood transfusions, and they also make sure that their children don't give blood transfusions. And this is would be living in bad faith because they're saying, I don't have a choice. My religion says I can't do this, and thus I won't do this. And uh, the existentialists would say that your choice to accept that religion is a, is a choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, when somebody says, um, these are just the beliefs I, I was raised with, this is, this is where I come from, um, oftentimes they'll say things as well like, oh, you can't understand my perspective because you, you haven't had the experiences that I, I do. Um, the existentialists would, would reject that. They wouldn't say that there aren't some things to learn from somebody else who's had different experiences, of course, but to make it the sort of like a brick wall that says, oh, I'm on this side, you're on that side, just doesn't work for the existentialists. Right. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about why they think people lapse into bad faith. If bad faith is kind of a deception of oneself and others, why, why do it? You mentioned grounding and security. We've talked a little bit about anxiety and ambiguity. Um, the fact that we are free means that we're, we're stuck choosing and we can't pass the buck, the responsibility buck onto anybody else, right? We're accountable, even if we don't want to say that we are. And so for, for a lot of people, this, this produces what the existentialists call anxiety, which could manifest as what we psychologically call anxiety, but, it, but it's something broader, right? Yeah. Um, anxiety or, or anguish? Well, they're both translations of the same thing. Okay, so in, 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 in anguish in German, would be that, it's, that, it's, that feeling that you get when you realize the the enormity of the choices that you have yeah. and, and you want to run away from it to find some other reason why uh, you can't do that instead of, you know, facing the actual choice yourself. Yeah. In, in, in German, it's angst, right? And so people talk about angst or angst, and then that got translated as angoise in, in French. So that's why some translations say anxiety and some say anguish. Um, interestingly, in ancient Greek, because this is not a new emotion, it's agonia, the word we get agony from, agony. right? And yeah. so there's like this whole constellation of things that are uncomfortable, and they're uncomfortable in a fundamental way, because it, it doesn't just have to do with like, you know, being afraid of, I don't know, my water bottle tipping over or something like that. 
it's 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 broader. It's it's like, well, am I going to tip this water bottle over and it's going to like hit my keyboard and screw it up, and then I'm going to you know be without a keyboard? Kind of minor stuff, but you you, you get the idea. Um, Kierkegaard has this famous thing about the guy who's on the edge of the cliff, and Sartre, Sartre brings this up. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. You tell me if this has ever happened to you because it's happened to me. You get to the edge of the cliff. And you look down and you feel this sense of vertigo. And the sense of vertigo isn't just like, oh, that's a long ways down, right? Um, it's, it's also, I could actually throw myself off of here. And then you think, well, why the hell would I do that? That's stupid. And then you think, yeah, but I still could. <laughs> that's being aware of your, your possibilities. Not all possibilities are, are good possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, that happens to me even when I play Minecraft. And I look down over a, a, a deep area. Um, I have that physical reaction. Now, do you? Does that happen to you? Uh, yes, and I, I've heard people refer to this as the call to the void. Mm. Um, and and I get it a lot when I drive mountain roads with very steep oh, fall-offs. It's like, oh, I. It would only take me turning the uh, steering wheel like ten degrees. Yeah, and it would mean my almost certain death. And, and there's like, you just, you're, you're looking at all of your possibilities and it's like, oh, it's so simple and I could just not be here. Yeah. And, and there, there is a little bit of like pull. It's like, oh, that, that is one of my possibilities at any point in time. I can make that decision. You know, and you could say this about relationships, too. You could have a, a relationship that, and we don't have to idealize, oh, it's a beautiful, wonderful relationship. Nothing ever goes wrong. Let's, no, it's a real-life relationship. And let's say you're actually, like, in an argument. You know, before you say that stupid, mean, biting thing, that you could say it or not say it, right? And now, it, a lot of times we do say it, and then, you know, what do we do immediately afterwards? You made me say that, right? That would be bad faith. Right. This earlier, you said uh, you couldn't do something because you have responsibilities, and yeah. to a certain extent, I believe this, uh, the existentialists say that's living in bad faith. That just because you have well, that's that's where I think we reach the limits um, yeah. of the existentialists because they also do want to say you should be a you should be a decent person, and so I think with Sartre, it's really hard to reconcile these things. And you look at his his characters who are heroes like. Uh, the guy in the in the book, the book, the Age of Reason, the first of his his Paths of Liberty um, uh, series, who's who's basically Sartre himself. Um, he evades responsibility, and it seems almost like Sartre is endorsing that. De Beauvoir doesn't, and that's that's one place where I think she differs considerably from from Sartre, um, and and some of the other existentialists resisted that as well and criticized Sartre for that. So, you know, Camus broke with, with Sartre, you know, um, and, and it wasn't just over communism. I think it was also over stuff like that. Gabriel Marcel criticized Sartre for, for stuff like that as well. Uh, that's why the ethics of ambiguity is such a, a necessary extension to, I think, Sartre's thought. How do you actually yeah. well, now, create you, some ethics there? What do you make of that book? It's, I really like it. Yeah, uh, I, I do too. The, uh, it's kind of like, she takes and has a lot of categories of people that are very similar and remind me of Nietzsche in his, um, what is it, the the 
Underman, the uh, oh, and thus spoke Zarathustra. Oh no, sorry, yeah, in um, sorry, the the cow, the lion, and the child, and and but extends it on because like she says, yeah, you can get to the place where you're you're going around and you're being the child that uh, Nietzsche talks about. This person that is like uh, realizes that there's no intrinsic meaning in the world, that you know, total nihilist, and he just goes around and, and does whatever he wants. To he goes and creates a uh, a project and he goes and tries to complete it and uh simone goes well but there's only certain so there are certain things that can't be done unless you have other free people around with you yeah and thus gets your imperative to actually try to make more people free right there is right, yeah certain things that we need in order to be free. And if you're stuck in constant poverty and you're being constantly oppressed, then it's going to be really hard for you to be free. Yeah. That is one place where I think she definitely improved upon Sartre's work. And it's interesting. I mean, being in nothingness, that is a nutcracker of a book. It's so thick that you could crack walnuts with it. Ethics of ambiguity is, is like, one-fifth its length, but I would say it's there's probably as much contained in it in terms of understanding the human condition. Um, and, and yeah, she, she, she catches on to something else that Sartre kind of misses out on. Sartre seems to be willing to say, okay, everybody's got facticity, everybody's got their, their challenges and places that they begin with, but you're radically free, so don't blame anybody else for anything. You know, We're all kind of radically free to the same amount. And de Beauvoir says, no way, buddy. Some people um, are not radically free. And, and why? It's not because they, there's something wrong with them like organically. It's because of the social conditions that they're in. They are their, their facticity is limited. Exactly. And it's limited because of the way society is set up. And, and you know, coming back to the theme of education, I think education plays a, a really important role in helping people see that there, all, there are alternative possibilities. But education isn't enough, right? We, we also need to change social conditions. Um, you know, prime example of this is there, there's still a, even for the, the, as far as we can tell, for the, the millennials and maybe even for Generation Z, there still seems to be a gap when it comes to domestic duties in couples. Um, women do more of the stuff than men do, even when they're, uh, you know. Fully employed. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and now that, that restricts facticity in, in very important ways. Um, and I think that's something that, that you know, Du Beauvoir would say we need to work towards changing that. Not, not that we need to say, well, everybody has to do exactly the same amount of work. I think she'd say that's the sort of thing people have to kind of figure out, negotiate with each other as free agents, responsible for themselves, trying to build something new, responsible for if they have kids, other lives, even if they have dogs or cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and- Something that we almost touched on last week is, uh, but didn't quite get to, was uh, the freedom from and the freedom to oh, distinction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we often talk about that as negative and positive freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess the uh, freedom from, which would be like you're you're free from other people's like imposing negative things upon you, like someone you're free from someone get uh, punching you in the face. 
Okay. Um, yeah. But you're. Uh, but we don't always have the freedom to do certain things. If we want to, I don't know, uh, go and go to I don't know, India and spend years at a monastery, uh, you have to have a certain amount of material wealth in order to pay for that. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> not be, everyone has those yeah. those things. I would be I would be willing to say you probably need even a certain amount of wealth just to be able to consider that as something mm. that you would do, right? And there's right. so many things, you know. That, that's that's actually a great point. Um, there's so many things that the mentality of poverty imposes on people. You can't plan for the long term, you know, mm-hmm. or just being in in massive debt which is the case for so many people in our, our country right now. Uh, what, uh, like, I think the, the statistic is like half of the population can't deal with a unexpected $500 bill. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think if I remember right, student loan debt, just that debt, not medical debt, not uh, uh, credit card debt or stuff like that. Student loan debt is something like, if I remember correctly, again, something like $1.5 trillion, you know? That's a giant chunk. And it's, it's you know, we, we see this manifest in, you know, young people extending the time in which they will marry, start families, buy houses. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is reducing someone's freedom to do many things that they might have not done. It's like, would you take that job at Wall Street or are you going to take that job doing something that you might find actually more fulfilling because you have to pay off your you know $150,000 in college tuition fees? Yeah. I mean, if you could get the job on Wall Street, that, that that's pretty good. I think for, for most people, it's, you know, substantially lower. <laughs> offers that they're, they're getting, which might not pay for this. The, what well, I was, I was anyway, thinking yeah. about like one that would pay lower, but actually have more meaning to them. So for exactly, example, I worked yeah. in the banking industry for a while and I hated it because I felt like it was destroying my soul. How that so? I don't have. <laughs> That's... Um, uh, just, I, I feel um, every day I was working in the back end of mortgages. Hmm. And so I, nothing I was doing was productive. It was always destructive. And, and to have your meaning be, um, basically I'm a cog in the machine that eventually results in, um, a person having one of the worst days of their lives is really grating on one psyche. Oh yeah. I, I worked very briefly as a mortgage clerk at a place that closed because interest rates changed quickly. And I hated it. Oh, it was it was it was awful. It was right out of college, and I was temping. And what we all all we did the whole company was bundling together mortgages into these giant packages that investors would buy. You know, and I understood what we were doing, but it 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 was totally meaningless to me. You know, and in the end, it was actually very destructive. Yeah, I assume this was pre. <laughs> 2008 this was back this would have been in 1994 yeah and i remember so i'm going to tell a very short story i remember 
um, when the Fed, I don't know exactly what it did with interest rates, but it did something, it moved, and the company basically had to fold because they were operating so close to the margins. And they called us in for a meeting, and they were like, listen, everybody, we're going to have to send all of you home. Uh, you know, this is, this is unfortunate, et cetera, et cetera. And I raised my hand, and I said, well, how does this affect me? And they're like, it doesn't affect you at all. You're a temp. It doesn't matter. You know, shut up and sit down. <laughs> And, you know, now when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, actually, I shouldn't ask that question because these other people, the meaning of their existence is kind of tied up in this. Hell, I'll find another job. You know, I'm just some schmo who's who's uh, right out of college. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting thing to see happen. Um, sort of writing on the wall about, you know, how many other places would be closing. Right. So I think we should move on to our practice because we're running yeah. out of time here. So we've already been kind of circling around this whole idea the entire time. It is how to live it, not to live in bad faith. And um, it requires so a decision, talking... right? Sorry, say again. It requires a decision. Yes. And you have to be aware of your facticity and you also need to be aware of your transcendence, your, your uh, set of possibilities and to actively make choices and to, I guess, actively be aware of the choices that you've already made and that you think are restricting yourself. Yeah, and so how, how would one do this in very practical ways? You could think of how you define yourself and your sort of knee-jerk reactions of thinking, I am just this, or this is just this, and realize, well, actually, I've got a choice here. I can go this way, I can go this way, and, and it's not going to radically change my life most of the time, but I have that little bit of leeway. Now, that might produce so, some anxiety. Yeah, so for example, if you're... If you say like, oh, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and then someone from your party makes a position oh, that you don't gonna, agree yeah. with, yeah. and then you need to decide if your facticity as one of the person that's part of this party overrides what you actually think is the right thing for you to do in this you know, question, whatever it happens to be. You know, that's a, a really great example. I would love to see people belonging to groups like that policing their own, as, as we'd say, like calling them out, you know, saying, this isn't okay just because, you know, you're, you're in our, our camp. Another uh, good example of this kind of from a uh, outside way of looking at it is it's like a haiku, which is a poem that is has strong restrictions within it and so it has a facticity it has to have a certain lines and certain syllables but you do have a large amount of artistic ability within that very structured and tight restrictions do you think it's it's good for us to have something like that where we we do have we could call them quite tight restrictions clear clear lines and then we, we decide you know, what we're going to do. The thing about relationships, for example, you know, should we should we say, well, we don't want everything to be up for grabs and up for negotiation all the time. We need to have like sort of you know um, guidelines. I think you know having ground rules that you might ground uh, rules. That's the word. I was uh, yeah. Revisit every once in a blue moon is probably a good idea. But yeah, there's definitely, especially if you go into a, a, a marriage or something, you're going to have some ground rules. What was expected and what is not? Like, what can't you do? And, and um, yeah, you, you have to know what also the 
consequences of you breaking those things. Like you know that if you're in a relationship and you're in a monogamous relationship, that going around and seeing other people is not going to go and fly. That's a that's a great example. Um, I think a lot of marriages would be benefited by looking less at the vows, which happen once, and, and establishing groundwork. So that's that's where we maybe we'll close. Yeah. Um, you want to lead us out on some final thoughts? Yeah, just a, a nice little quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, which are, We are condemned to be free. 